the Recovery Executive Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and behavioral health consulting firm. Um, Today, we are speaking with Lori Ryland. Lori, I met in Barcelona. We were both speaking at a clinical research conference for addiction treatment. And I was just very impressed by her presentation and her knowledge. Uh, I personally talk to a lot of clinical directors with our clients. And when we go in and do our consultations, we always meet with the clinical director. And she really has an amazing perspective on running good clinical care, but she's also the chief clinical officer of Pinnacle Treatment Centers. And so they have over 80 facilities. Uh, which means that you have to provide good clinical at scale, which is something that's very challenging. Um, So very excited to talk to her about this. But before we get any further, I want to hear from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. Great. So as I mentioned, there's really two things that we're going to be talking with Lori about. One of them is operating good clinical at scale. So what kind of systems and processes need to be in place to ensure that good quality care is being delivered across as many as 80 facilities and you know, multiple clinicians per facility. Uh, the other thing that we're going to get into is skills-based clinical care or skills-based therapy. So this is something that I personally see and my team sees on a regular basis within treatment centers is that there's not a strong understanding from clinicians and therapists about how to help patients, clients, customers, whatever word you use in your facility, build skill sets that are going to help them be successful in recovery. Most clinical care is delivered from a psychoeducation standpoint, and this really ends up coming from you know, universities and trainings. Uh, it's not any clinicians or, or therapists fault per se. Um, it's just something that's not taught, right? Adult learning theory is not taught. How to run successful skill-based learning is not taught. And the way that you want to think about this is, is think of any skill set that you need in life. It could be riding a bike. It could be learning to swim. It could be speaking a language. You can't learn these things sitting in a classroom or reading books about them or even just listening to other people talk about them, right? To ride a bike, I need to get on that bike and ride it. To learn to swim, I need to get in the water and learn to swim. To learn another language, I have to speak it and hear it. I can't just examine the grammar from a book. It just doesn't work. And recovery is exactly the same, whether you're talking about addiction or mental health. If I have maladaptive cognitive behaviors or thought patterns or just kind of the way I interact with people and communicate are not the best for me, then I have to build new skill sets. 
So how do you do that within a clinical setting, whether it's in your process groups or whether it's in one-on-one? So that's something that Lori and I are gonna dive um, pretty deeply into and just help you understand what good clinical care should look like from a skills-based standpoint rather than a purely psychoeducational standpoint. And then we're gonna do something a little bit different. Right at the end of the um, interview, I'm going to kind of walk through a sample structure of a group and how that would look. So as we finish up the conversation, stay tuned because I'll just provide a real quick kind of spotlight on what a good clinical um, process group would look like that's coming from a skills-based perspective, just so there's, there's a lot more clarity around it for people. So with that, let's jump into the conversation with Lori and get things started. Hey, Lori, super excited to have you on today. Uh, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about who you are, what you do? Hi, Nick. Sure. Um, my name is Lori Ryland. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer for Pinnacle Treatment Centers. Um, we provide residential and detox treatment, outpatient services, and medication-assisted treatment for addictive disorders. Um, as, a, um, as far as training, I'm a doctoral-level licensed psychologist, and I have specialty certification in addictive disorders and CBT, and I'm also a board-certified behavior analyst. Uh, most of my training in the areas of evidence-based practices include um, cognitive behavior therapies like acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, motivational interviewing, contingency management, and also um, I'm trained in applied behavior analysis. Um, over my career, I've provided um, clinical treatment, supervision, consultation, program development, done a lot of training, healthcare administration, um, a lot of public policy work. Um, that's one of my passions is in the area of public policy. And I've also um, done a lot of work in managed care from a payer perspective. So we actually met in Barcelona, which was probably one of the most interesting conferences I think I've spoken <laughs> at. <laughs> yes, yes. It was it was a good time in Barcelona. It was so yeah. nice. You know, I, I, had, um, I had heard your name before, and I believe you actually reached out to me when I was in a prior role as a CEO of a facility. I think you reached out to me back then as well. Um, but yeah, it was great. Um, it was great catching up and, and getting to know you in person. Yeah. So that was just really interesting. Um, but so one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is I was really impressed by your presentation, uh, especially around kind of the clinical background, evidence-based practice. But also what I think really struck me was you had a very organic, what, what do you call it, a systems approach to um, yes. kind of understanding uh, clinical protocols. And so it's not just this linear model. It's not just putting rules in place or, you know, saying that you have to do this and this. It's really working with all these different variables that come into play. The, the patient, their life history, um, the clinician's own skill sets, the organizational kind of focuses and philosophy. So that's why I wanted to have you on is kind of walk through a lot of these complex processes and systems. And one of the things that I liked as well is you were very focused on kind of skill building activities rather than just um, psychoeducation per se um, is a big part of what you guys do from a clinical standpoint. So first off, can you just kind of give us an overview of your clinical philosophy and then how that gets implemented at Pinnacle? Definitely. And I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Um, so, um, you know, I, I do I do know that, um, you know, I, I think you and I, Nick, share some of the concerns as we look at um, addiction treatment, you know, and other organizations, you know, over our, our professional careers, you know, we've, I, I've noticed, as you have mentioned as well, you know, that some of the, the quality can be lacking, you know, there can be a little bit of um, looseness and adherence to any specific protocols. And that is um, very key for me in the work that I do um, with Pinnacle. 
is to make sure that the treatment that we provide is structured, it has evidence-based foundations, and that it's also provided in the context of a healing philosophy. You know, that patients are treated with professionalism and respect, that we anticipate that challenging behaviors will arise, and that staff have the skills in how to respond to those behaviors um, with, with actual strategies to help someone make changes and how they, how they respond to situations. Um, often you'll see challenging behaviors arise and then the only option is to kick the person out of treatment. And that is one less person that you have the ability to impact. Um, so, you know, I, so um, I have some pretty strong philosophical underpinnings in behavior, behavioral treatment and also this understanding that, you know, we can't treat patients who are who've passed away, right? We can't, we can't treat patients who are no longer here and that our best bet is to make sure that every interaction we have with the patient is a therapeutic one. So, um, so a lot of what I do is, is designing structure so that the staff and the facilities have what they need in order to be successful in the treatment that they provide. Um, we, do, we do provide psychoeducation and you know, psychoeducation definitely has its place. Um, and I know the research can be mixed on the, um, the efficacy of, of psychoeducation, but when you look at it purely from the standpoint of has this person gained knowledge in the subject that I'm teaching, you can often see that, yes, in fact, they've gained knowledge. It also can be effective in helping that patient understand that it's not a moral failing, you know, that understanding how addiction works what are some of the triggers and issues they need to be aware of can help them understand not only why they're in that situation, but how they can get out of that situation. So psychoeducation is a piece of treatment that is very important, but it's not the only piece. You know, it's really important that programs have a good therapeutic foundation that's built within the program itself. So we ensure that um, in any given treatment day, and I'm talking residential treatment right now, in any given treatment day, there is at minimum six hours of, of structured clinical treatment services. Um, that includes a blend of psychoeducation as well as the evidence-based practice modalities. Um, it, could all, it also includes process group, which you know, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, and then beyond that, you'll see what you also associate with residential treatment, which includes um, recovery support as well as some experiential activities to help increase the ability to learn in new ways. So if you have a recovery concepts around like, let's say, um, like a, a high ropes activity or, a, or a, um, a climbing wall or hiking, you know, you might actually have that patient remember that situation much more than they remembered the class about it. You know, so incorporating each of those four can be really, really helpful. So one of the things you mentioned is in there is different strategies that you're providing to clinicians and providing this structure. And I think something that we see in programs is sometimes we'll, we'll see a lack of oversight that's happening with uh, the philosophies and the support. So can you talk again at a higher level about how you structure as a clinical director for the entire organization, um, support for the clinicians, and then, but also like accountability and adherence to um, philosophy and you know, best practices within the organization? Absolutely. So um, let me dial back a little bit and, and talk about how important it is to hire the right staff. So you want to start with making sure that the staff you bring through the door are a good fit for your treatment team and that they 
it, they, they basically show up with the, the same fundamental understandings about human beings and hope and optimism that, that you want on your team. You don't want to have um, a staff member come in, a therapist or a, an RA or you know, even an, a medical doctor who doesn't align with the philosophy of the organization. Once you have that, um, you know, I honestly, at this point, you know, because of the, the size of the organization, um, we actually say, here is the curriculum, here's the expectation. You know, so if it's week one, you know, week one um, Sunday, here's what we expect the curriculum to be. We provide the materials, we provide the training, we, 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 make, we basically make sure that that the staff receive the proper support and training. Then we actually go back in and we check the documentation to make sure it aligns with what our expectations are for that day. Um, that allows us to make sure that what we're trying to accomplish is, is clear and then the outcomes that we're tracking to determine whether or not our services are, are helping the patients, that, that we have fidelity to, to some type of a, a clinical program. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So uh, a couple, or at least one thing to unpack there. You mentioned that you have um, people reviewing documentation. And again, you guys are a large provider. You have what, I think 80 facilities at different levels yeah. of care now. Um, so that's a lot of clinicians, right? Probably multiple clinicians per facility. So who's doing those documentation reviews and how is that managed just logistically? Um, so there are different levels of documentation review. Um, so we have, um, we, we have, you know, I would say around, you know, 300 therapists throughout the organization, and that includes clinical directors as well. So um, in my role as chief clinical officer, I provide, you know, kind of the more overall arching clinical philosophy and training and curriculum. And then the clinical director at, at the facilities or the program director for um, OTPs, you know, they support what the how that model is implemented at the facility. So they have accountability around ensuring that their facility is meeting those expectations. So um, they there are facility peer chart reviews. We also do some documentation review and the utilization management team, you know, that helps support that as well. And then we have a quality team where um, and I, I oversee the quality team. We have staff and their boots on the ground. They're in each of our facilities um, each quarter. So there, there is always an expectation that they're, they're physically in the location. They're looking at the programming. They're looking at the, the procedures, ensuring that we're um, CARF ready, you know, which is our accrediting body, as well as our, our um, programming is, is as it should be. Okay, and then you do a lot of clinical supervision. I know you do some yourself, but obviously you're not going to do all of it. How often are you observing uh, other clinicians, or how often is your team observing other clinicians um, you know, on a, maybe a monthly basis? Um, so th that, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of the, the overview that I do, I do the training on the front end. I do a lot of consultation with not just the clinical directors, but the executive directors as well. If they run into an issue, they know how to reach me. About every other week, I'm on the road um, at the facilities providing some face-to-face -face support as well. Um, but as far as um, the day-to-day, -day, that is often managed by the executive director and the clinical director or program director for, for um, outpatient. Sure. And then, uh, so maybe a better way to phrase that question is, how often would an individual therapist or clinician be observed by, you know, a peer or a supervisor? Absolutely. That's a good question. So each of our facilities have um, regulations around the issue of supervision for the staff. 
Um, each states vary a little bit. We make sure the, the quality team provides oversight regarding the frequency and um, comprehensiveness of supervision at the facility level. So, um, for instance, um, and, and we make sure that our clinical directors are properly credentialed so that they can provide that supervision. Um, they do the sign-offs on the documentation and the electronic medical record and, and any other, other issues that need to be addressed. So most of that um, face-to-face supervision, either individually or, or in a group, is managed at the facility level with the clinical director. Okay. And then what about onboarding? How long is your onboarding process for new therapists and clinicians? Um, onboarding um, can, can vary depending upon the experience of the therapist who's coming on board. Um, if a therapist is relatively new in the field, um, we have a core set of trainings that each of our staff is required to complete. And then um, once they complete that training, we also have, you know, a process of of kind of um, um, shadowing and and um, um, direct supervision as we get that 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 staff person ready to to provide services. So so we might do some co-facilitation as well as and, and then like I mentioned that comprehensive training program. If that person is going to be facilitating any component of the clinical program, is required before they can do that. Okay. So something that we see in programs is we'll, we'll go in and the clinical director or sometimes it's just the um, executive director hires the clinicians and then has no oversight. You know, their response is, well, we just hire good clinicians and we let them do um, what they need to do. Whereas yeah, I think our conversation has been in the past that there needs to be a, a better balance there. You want structure, curriculum, and kind of overall philosophies um, coming down to have some kind of level of standardization and quality. Um, at the same time, you want to allow that flexibility for individual clinicians to bring their own strengths and skill sets. So can you kind of walk us through how you interpret that and balance that out? Absolutely. Now, when, when we design training, we design training assuming that the person coming into the training it has relatively little experience behind them. So we want to make sure that the training is comprehensive enough and specific enough for someone who is, is just starting and needs to learn every aspect of it. Because, like, let's take, for instance, acceptance and commitment therapy. That is one of the evidence-based practices that, that I, I have training in and that I do quite a bit with. But you know, someone else who may have a lot of experience in, in a different type of modality may have very little, if any, experience in acceptance and commitment therapy. So we, we start kind of at a baseline level of, of um, what, what is the, the theoretical orientation that we're training on, and then we build from there. So often the facilitation training I do is literally, let's go over session one. Here's, here's the, here are the concepts that you're going to cover in session one. It's not high, you know, level philosophical. It's very, very practical and concrete. And then we provide those materials in order to do that. We do have, you know, some rock stars, you know, throughout the organization that bring a lot of expertise to the table. And we don't want to create a process where they don't feel like they can, they can excel, right? So the, the process that I have for that is, you know, I have, you know, um, you know, a couple of, of um, clinical directors that come to mind, you know, I invite them to say, here is something that I want to train that I think works really well within the program. We review it together and then we come up with a way to measure it through fidelity. That way we do have some variation, but it's all consistent to what would be expected as evidence-based. 
And so if, so at the end of the day, we wouldn't expect that to result in any deviation from the outcomes that we were trying to track. Does that make sense? Mm. So you said measure according to fidelity. Can you explain that a little bit further? Absolutely. So let's say that, um, that you know, someone wants to um, provide a, a specific treatment that is, um, is not in the, the curriculum, not already in the curriculum. The questions I would have would be, how would I know, you know, as because often it's not the clinical director performing the treatment, right? So it's not necessarily them facilitating it. I said, if you walked into that group that day, what would you look for to know that that treatment is being provided the way that it's expected to be provided? You know, um, what type of material might be covered? You know, it's not always material driven. Sometimes it might be, you know, doing a like a, a a family mapping, you know, with the patients, or it might be, you know, a patient going through an experience where they're standing up and talking about, you know, um, some of the consequences of their addiction, you know, whatever that is, how how would I know walking in the door that what you expect to happen has happened that day? And we start to identify some of those aspects. And then we create that as an expectation for the group. That way, we know that, that we won't have significant drift as we have new therapists come in, as we have turnover, that we know that there's some kind of foundational expectation to that treatment. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, and then I think something that I've always found challenging is related to that fidelity is how do you know what you're measuring or how do you set up good measurement? And so I'll, I'll use an example going back to back when I used to do education. Um, but we'd be like in an English learning classroom, right? And you'd see a teacher and they'd put two questions on the board and one would say, I have three apples and I have the other option B would be, I have four oranges. And then they'd ask the students to pick which one was correct based on a picture. Well, there's problematic there, right? Because all they have to do is recognize the apple and they don't necessarily have to recognize the numbers, which were different. So there was a failure to kind of isolate, um, and therefore an ability to actually identify what the children had learned. And so, you know, do you have any examples like that? I know that's a tough question, but anything that you guys do internally where you help them identify what a kind of good measurement is for a particular outcome or behavior? Um, sure, sure. You know, um, you know, being a, a, a behavior analyst, you know, it's very, very much how my, my brain is wired anyway, is to try to identify what, what is the target behavior that you're trying to achieve? You know, so for instance, um, you know, when you're thinking of acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, um, you, you know, there's a lot of work around values, right? So um, you want to make sure that, you know, the, the individuals in the group are, that they're, they're moving their lives in a consistent um, direction of what their values are. And you understand that each member of that group has different values. And if they if they're not moving in the direction of their values, there's going to be a conflict because they're 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 probably going to feel an increase in shame and they're going to not not be comfortable living outside of their values. Like like, you know, think of one of the the basic examples. If you're um, someone who believes, you know, deep down that family is literally the most important thing, yet your work ethic has you working 80 to 100 hours a week. Right then you're, you're, you're not going to feel comfortable that you're living within your values of family being the most important if your behavior is actually looking very different. 
So, you know, if there's a values group and acceptance and commitment therapy, there is a group where we're, ta- we're spending a lot of time digging in and talking about values and each of the patients, you know, go through an exercise individually and then collectively as a group where they talk about what their values are. Some of the behaviors that we look at look at in that particular group would be, did you go over the exercise? Did the patients participate? You know, did you, were your patients actually in the room? You know, so some of the behaviors that I've tracked over the years have included which patients are in the room and which patients are smoking on the deck, right? Because (laughs) you can't treat patients that are smoking on the deck. They might be getting a lot of good therapeutic intervention with their colleagues or their, their peers, but they're not getting what you want them to get. So they're not even in the room. So we track attendance in the sessions. We track you know, what is being, um, what information is being um, transferred in the session. And then finally, do you see generalizability of what you have implemented outside the room? Because if you only have the learning in the room and then they walk out and they're, they're, they're going back to their old behaviors, then you're not going to see any sustainability of the therapeutic results, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, so, I love that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're always trying to look at each of those um, levels of what we're trying to, to observe to make sure that, that we see evidence that we're on the right track as a program. Uh, a couple of things there. So I just love, you know, one of the things that we'll often recommend with um, clients is that they have a diagnostic tool for some of those analysis. Like you said, how are people in the room or talking time is a big one, right? Yeah. And they'll just start recording who's talking, how much time they're talking. And, you know, you'll see a two hour session where like two people only talked for like two minutes and you're like, well, <laughs> are they really yeah. getting value out of that clinical session? And how can we improve that? Or you'll see that the clinician talks, you know, 80% of the time. It's like, well, what, what's happening in the session, right? Where are they learning? So I think it's important to have those different diagnostic tools when you're doing supervisions and observations. Um, another thing I like that you said is that focus on the behavioral context and are they doing the skill that you're trying to teach outside of um, the, the group? Right. And I go back to kind of teaching in this one, but like I used to have examples of teachers and they say, okay, students today, we are using should for advice. And so can you give me some sentences with should? And of course they use should and they give you advice using those sentences, right? But what really needs to happen is you have to create a context to see if they use it in their appropriate situation. So like I would help the teachers understand, say, okay, I want you to go in and tell them that you have a problem today and that you got in a fight with your you know, mother and um, you're asking for advice. So, you know, please give me some advice. Well, they should naturally start using a should structure because we use should for advice exactly. in English, right? So you create the context and see if they actually use it in that context. And that tells you if they've learned it appropriately or not versus just telling them, hey, use this, because it's not the same thing. Um, so let's get into kind of skill set building there, because this is something you and I have talked about quite a bit. What else do you do from a clinical director perspective to help ensure that skill sets are being built in addition to just the education and the knowledge part? That is a really good question. Um, so let me, let's walk through that a little bit. So um, you have the actual skill building groups that are a foundational component of the program, you know? So um, those skill building groups are literally like a, a teaching component, right? You know, so you're, you're providing um, information and you have students who are reacting to that information. So you're, you're trying to teach skills, you're practicing skills. The goal of that part of the curriculum is to relay those skills and have them practiced in, that, in the context of that group session. 
So that that's one. And then you also have, um, you know, if you if you build a program and you have your staff at every level trained in the basic fundamental concepts of the evidence-based practices you're training the patients, then you have you you then extend, you know, those skills into the milieu. You know, so it so we we actually go to great lengths to make sure that week one is week one, right? Week two is week two. It doesn't build upon each other. It's important that it doesn't because we have patients entering the program at any point, right? So we can't wait to start week one until we have a group of patients. So we just have to. It's week one, and everybody, you know, some people have been there three weeks, some people have been there one week. Um, but then, but everyone in the in the um, facility might know that it's it's the week that DBT talks about interpersonal effectiveness, and they might be working on a specific skill on how to ask for something that they need or decline uh, appropriately decline something that is requested. You know, which is an important skill in addiction treatment because that's where you start to notice if someone calls and says, hey, do you want to go to the bar tonight or do you want to go use, that person needs to have the skills on how to, how to refuse, refusal skills. So, um, so you, you, if, if the, the, the facility is aware that that's what we're talking about, then they're standing at the nurse's station. Uh, you know, they're, they're not happy that they're waiting so long. The nursing staff can also shape some of that that awareness and say, well, what did you talk about in DBT today? You know, didn't you cover this? And then start to kind of generalize, you know, that learning out in in real life and not just in the context of that room. Um, In the process group component, which is, in my opinion, a really critical part of a treatment program, because, you know, process group is where you start to help support and shape the concept of a therapeutic community. You know, so if I have a group of 10 patients that I'm working with in process group, then the topic is basically what is happening today? You know, what what is urgent? What crisis happened? What issue happened in the facility yesterday? Maybe maybe um, someone, you know, needed to leave or maybe there was an incident or maybe I had a call last night with, with my loved one. You know, whatever it is that's, that's current is the topic of the day. So then as a, as a facilitator or as a, a, a psychotherapist, you know, I'm going to try to make balance and make sure that everyone feels engaged, that we don't have one person who's dominating while other people are not speaking, but that it helps to build this context of support where you're shaping behaviors of listening, you're shaping behaviors of sharing, and you're helping them to become a stronger group. It's not about doing individual therapy in a group context, which I know some do um, um, almost by accident. But, you know, you're, you're helping to support this concept of learning skills and trying them out and practicing them. And you have the entire team is aware of, of some of those skills you're trying to, to influence with the patients. So that's fascinating. So you're actually working with on an organizational level to hopefully get other staff outside of the group space to be working with them on these skills as well. Exactly. Interesting. Lots of questions here. So I think one of them is, well, first, what are some skills that you guys teach? What are some basic, you know, skills that you're trying to teach patients in groups? Um, that's so. So let's let's start with just two of the evidence-based practices, like acceptance and commitment therapy and DBT. So each of those evidence-based practices has a framework that that has an underpinning for that 
for the skills that you're going to be be providing. So DBT, you have, you know, four domains. You have you're building interpersonal effectiveness skills or how patients relate to each other. You're building mindfulness, you know, which is key. It's actually key in acceptance and commitment therapy as well. It's it's how you're teaching the patient to be here instead of somewhere else. Like instead of being stuck in the past, you know, a lot of shame about things that didn't go well yesterday or anxiety and fear about the future. You're, you're helping the person be here right now, which is really the only moment we can live in anyway. And if you push, you know, um, uh, you know, a patient who's struggling, it's often not this moment that's the problem, right? You know, the, the problem is often what happened in the past or worries about the future. Usually they would say, well, right now I'm okay, right? So, so why don't we try to help build that? You're okay right now. Let's try to be here right now. Um, and then let's let's give you the skills you need for addressing anything that might happen tomorrow. And then, you know, the, the next two domains in, in um, DBT are emotion regulation and distress tolerance. You know, how you help that person keep those emotions a little bit more in the middle. And then how do you help someone respond to a, a distress situation? So all of the skills in DBT are 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 in those four categories and you have a lot of different ways you can um, help the patient using fun strategies and mnemonic um, examples where they can you know help to remember you know how they're supposed to respond in a given situation so that's dbt on the flip side you know thinking about acceptance and commitment therapy there are six core therapeutic processes you focus on in acceptance and commitment therapy um, mindfulness is one. They call it contacting the present moment. Um, you know, they also bring in this concept that as human beings, we're often on automatic pilot. And, you know, the, our ability to remain present also helps us respond more effectively. So it's not really about increasing moments where we're numbing out or we're distracting. It's truly about being here, even if here is painful right now. You know, it's just about being present. And then also um, acceptance, you know, that's a key part, you know, um, making room for pain and urges and not resisting and fighting everything. You know, I think there's a tendency to um, white knuckle it instead of, you know, opening up and saying, okay, you know, this, is, this, this hurts a little and that's okay. And then also, um, you know, cognitive diffusion and self as context where someone is, you know, stepping back and observing you know, um, what's happening, what, you know, with thoughts and feelings and sen sensations and, and seeing that they're, they're happening, they're, they're there, but they're not necessarily me, right? They're, they're, that, that I am, I'm beyond those thoughts and feelings and emotions. And then as we, we discussed already, values are important. And then um, the idea of of taking committed action. You know, what are the behavioral expectations to move forward with my goals? And how can I tell that I'm being successful in those? And those are consistent with the values. So, you know, looking at just, just those two evidence-based practices, we incorporate several of them. But, you know, you each of those um, therapeutic processes or domains have a wealth of skills that are utilized in those evidence-based practices to to support those those areas. 
so let's just kind of make this a little bit concrete for people because I mean we've been oh God, I've been myself in over probably what 25 um, clinical programs so far you know just in the past like nine months and we don't see skill building right it just doesn't really exist in most programs so what's can you give us just one example of what an activity or a process group might look like that's you know focus on skill building absolutely so um, so let's talk about like a DBT skill so um, if you're talking about, um, you know, like a skill where you're going to be um, either asking someone for help, you know, which can be really difficult for someone, or um, declining someone who is um, asking you, you know. So, you know, there would be specific, um, you know, operational definitions on how you, how you would engage in those activities. So um, if someone were... Um, were like like if if you needed to ask for help it would say you know what do you what do you do you describe the situation you know that you're in you um, indicate you know how you feel about the situation you assert what you want and then you reinforce it so you might say something like um like you know i'm i'm struggling like let's let's use a common example for for a patient maybe i can't sleep at night you know i need to go to the the nursing station i need to ask for some help so they go up to the nurse's station and they say you know what i haven't been able to sleep the last three nights um you know that this has significantly impacted my ability to be attentive in group you know i'm not i'm not able to pay attention it's really bothering me i'm feeling you know kind of stressed out about that um i really need some help right now i need some ideas on what I can do that might help my sleep. Um, if I if I'm able to sleep, I think this will will significantly help me stay in treatment. It, it, does that kind of make sense? So it, so the the skill building can it it goes through an exact guide on how you can go through and practice, um, and it gives you that framework. And then you start to um, help the patient identify their own personal ways that they could implement that skill. So you say, what is something you're struggling with right now that you need to ask for help for? And you go through those steps. You train those steps. Um, one patient may say, you know, um, I really need to ask, you know, my, my mom for help because I can't pay my rent this month. I'm, I haven't been working. I lost my job last week. You know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to lose my housing. You're like, okay, great. That's your example. You go through each of those steps and you help them, you know, start to role play how they would ask for help in, the, in their own situation. And then they practice. Next time they come in, you say, okay, everyone, you know, how did your exercise go? How did your homework go? Let's talk about that. And you make it an engaging um, um, flow from teaching to practice to implementation and then reinforcing the skills that were that were um, implemented by the patient. And you do it in a way that is consistently optimistic. You know, you don't want to set up a program that, it, that feels punitive or aversive because no one wants to be in a program like that, right? So, so you want it to be a, a, just a really engaging, um, you want the, the staff to have energy and you want them to be um, knowledgeable in what they're teaching. And you want, you, you want there to be confidence in the program from every level of the organization. Yeah, I love that you say engagement because that's such an important part of it that I think sometimes we miss. You know, if people are not engaged, they're they're not going to pay attention. They're not going to commit it to memory. You know, and they're not going to be as involved in the activities. So it's important to exactly work that out. 
um, I'm a huge advocate of like pair work and group work within the clinical setting. And I was just kind of wondering on your perspective on that, especially when we look at like these skill building activities. Absolutely. So, um, so the group work component and then within the group skill building, you have, you know, you can utilize pair work as well as individual work, you know, between the facilitator and the patient that helps the patient to not only practice the skills that they that you're trying to teach them you know so that they're better equipped to handle situations that occur once they're discharged but it also has this key component that has become increasingly um, important to me throughout my career which is helping the patient develop this identity as a person in recovery you know, um, so, you know, what, what I've noticed, and I don't, I don't have any research on this or anything like that, but when you look at the patients who tend to do extremely well, even those patients that you didn't, you wouldn't have necessarily um, predicted that they would do as well as they did, they come back and tell you, hey, I've been clean for, you know, six months, a year, two years. You know, one thing that they describe is, that they, they acquire this um, identity as, you know, I'm an individual that's in recovery. So you're starting to help develop that sense of identity in the program that you're providing. Um, and then that patient, you know, from, you know, my, my observations tends to have a better, better um, likelihood of success. Um, that, they, that when they wake up in the morning, they step out of bed and they step into recovery. Right. It's just it's not it's not what they do. It's, it's who they are, that if you can help a patient get to that point, they're, they're more likely to be successful. And that's not really a skill. You know, that that's something that can be really difficult to, to teach. I think a lot of that goes back to the philosophy of motivational interviewing and how we meet each patient where they are and we help them move from where they are to somewhere that is, is more healthy and more in alignment with you know, that, that life worth living that we're trying to help every patient, you know, achieve. For sure. Yeah. All of that's, I, I just believe it's so important to get people involved. You know, again, with a lot of the clinical observations that we do, I'd say you probably 90% of them are just like you said, I can't remember how you phrased it. Like a uh, individual session in the group <laughs> is kind of how it works yes, out. Right. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. A lot of it is clinicians talking one-on-one to patients in the room, you know, um, which doesn't, you know, from an efficiency perspective, it's not driving the maximum value for the patients. And so this is a challenge though for clinicians and therapists because it's not part of their training, right? The training they get in university doesn't talk about skill building. It doesn't talk about maximizing efficiency within a group setting. Um, So what have you seen to be helpful in kind of onboarding clinicians in that particular aspect? Yeah, so um, when I see that happen, um, I tend to see that happen more likely in, pay, in, in staff that are inexperienced. You know, they're, they're relatively uncomfortable and inexperienced. And in those situations, I try to increase the support and the training. And sometimes I actually, you know, would recommend we bring in a, a co-facilitator so they can observe how that is supposed to look um, or staff that are unengaged or burned out, um, which is a significant risk in the addiction treatment field, you know, because it's, you know, it takes, you know, this field takes a significant amount of um, um, not only commitment in doing good work in the field, but also you have to have kind of a thick skin, 
right? I mean, you know, situations will come up. Um, and, you know, part of my role as someone who has um, spent most of my career working in this field has been to model, you know, how to remain calm in a, in a crisis because, you know, and this is pro- primarily in a residential treatment setting as opposed to an outpatient setting. But, you know, this does happen a little bit as well in IOP and PHP, as well as outpatient work that's done in a, a, a opioid treatment program. But every day somebody is in crisis, like literally. So if, if as a staff you're, you're wired and you're, um, you're reactive to every crisis every day, before you know it, your staff, they're burned out. No one wants to work there, right? You know, I mean, that, that's not a comfortable place to be. You, you almost have to think of it more like the energy of an ER as opposed to a primary doctor's outpatient um, practice. You know, you, you have to kind of have this certain energy around, yes, there's a crisis and that's pretty normal. And here is the protocol that we use to address that crisis. And we're going to be effective. We're going to meet it with calm because if we meet it with, a really high level of energy we're feeding into it as opposed to um, responding to it. And, um, you know, that's, that can be difficult. So if I see some of these, these um, symptoms, you know, in the programming, I ask myself, is it a, a therapist's lack of skill or an RA's lack of skill, or is it that they're kind of burned out or disengaged or they're struggling? Um, because then, then it might be a systemic issue that we just need to step back and think, you know, are we, are we short-staffed? Is this someone who has worked a lot of overtime because we, we need to make sure the staffing is, is appropriate to, keep, to maintain the program? You know, so in, in, from my experience, any kind of data that you have, you know, you step back and you, you look at it more from a sense of curiosity, like, okay, well, this is what I'm noticing and what does it mean and how do I best respond to it? How do I best shape it to be closer to what, uh, you know, the treatment is expected to look like? Because it's never a, okay, great, we did it, it's done, you step away. You know, it takes diligence and consistent effort and, and, um, and, you know, compassion. You know, you have, you really have to want to do this work. Yeah. You know, but when you have a team that is committed in doing this work, you know, I I personally can't think of anything more fun than that, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> sure. because it's 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 definitely um, there's definitely a lot of of reward in doing this kind of work. You know, watching you know patients every day turn their lives around, and and you know that you're not just impacting that person, but you're you're helping their family to be healthier. You're you're helping their children have better outcomes in their lives. You know, that there's a lot of reward in that kind of work. You just have to remember what the goal is. Yeah, there's a ton of reward, but there's also a, a ton of, of pain. And you hit on a good point there with your secondary trauma and the trauma transference and empathy fatigue. In those respects, what do you do from an organizational level to help your team um, deal with that? So so one thing we do, and we do this not only with patients but with staff, but we, we do what I call, um, you know, we call it inoculation. Like, you know how you, you get inoculated from, you know, with, with vaccines or something like that where you, you kind of you introduce a, a, a low, ineffective dose so that, 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 you know, the person can build up some resilience, right? That's the concept. 
So what we do is we try to incorporate that concept in treatment. Like um, if you're a staff person and you come on board and you believe, okay, this is going to be fantastic, this is going to be a piece of cake, you know, you're going to be surprised, right? But if you come in and people are going to say, you know what, this is not easy and, um, and it's going to be difficult, but, you know, the rewards are great, then that person has, is kind of prepared for that. Um, what I've also done as a leader in an organization is if we have a particularly challenging patient, um, I'll provide a lot more support for that particularly challenging patient because I want to see that patient succeed, not just for the patient, but for the team. Because then at the end of it, like, and I'll talk with the team, I'll say, okay, let's have a goal that we're not going to ask this person to leave treatment. We're going to give it everything we have. And we're, we're going to be the treatment program where that person ha- graduates, where they've never graduated before. They've been kicked out of every treatment they've ever been in. Let's, let's show how we can do this different, not just to that patient, but to ourselves. And then when, when that patient graduates at the end, there's not a dry eye. Right. And then but I do a lot of coaching and support, you know, um, you know, you you know, great job team, patient worked hard, you worked hard, I see you working hard. But then once that patient is discharged, the next patient that comes in that is has some challenging issues, the staff are like, well, if we if we if we were successful with that patient, we can we can do we can, you know, manage this patient, this is going to be okay. You know, but if if you start to shape you know, this concept of, okay, this, this is too challenging to treat, and we're going to block this, per, this admission at the door. And this, this um, arbitrary barrier is present, so we're not going to let this person in, in the gate. Then you're starting to, um, to kind of shape this um, low tolerance for um, challenges, right? You know, you, you want to see a team that, you know, you're like, you know what, you guys are rock stars. You're doing a fantastic job. You know, because challenges are going to happen every day. You know, you, there's no way to say um, we're we're going to try to try to treat the the middle of the bell curve, and we're going to try to try to eliminate anyone in the tail that we think it has, you know, maybe a co-occurring issue or a a medical issue that that um, they're, they're, that's not acute. You know, there are a lot of arbitrary barriers that that one can impact or, or put into place. You know, if you if you try to strive as a team to to help them, you know, respond and and give them the tools to be effective in providing treatment, then you're going to see um, see a lot more. Um, I, in my opinion, a lot more staff that are really excited to do the work that we do. So it sounds like you're talking a lot about culture. So you've had a lot of success in treating, you know, patients that maybe didn't weren't successful in other programs, were kicked out of other programs. That culture component is important. Do you see anything else specifically that you feel you've implemented at Pinnacle that also allows your team to succeed where other uh, providers have failed? Um, so uh, this is another culture response, but, um, you know, having this culture that, that we want to meet the patient where they are, that we want, we, so let's say that a situation happens for whatever reason, the patient drops out of treatment, leads against medical advice or, or, um, you know, the worst case scenarios if we have to ask a patient to leave. But when you regroup as the staff and say, um, um, first of all, whatever happened wasn't that patient's fault, right? I mean, the patient may have come in with some challenging issues, um, some co- complex comorbidities, but it's not, it's not that that was a 
quote unquote bad patient, right? But what you talk with the staff about includes things like how could our program have better met the needs of that patient? Like what is it that that um, that as a as a culture, as a as a, a skills or or expertise standpoint, could have provided that patient better care? You know, so when you're consistently having a dialogue around how to do better and how to eliminate barriers to treatment, that is is what I believe that Pinnacle does extremely well, is to try to figure out how to provide care to patients who need the, the treatment. Um, and that may include looking at the hours of treatment for like an opioid treatment program. Um, are we open at times the patient needs to come in for treatment so they can make it to work on time? You know, are our times prohibitive? You know, do they have access to public transportation? Are there barriers in that area? Um, you know, the um, opioid treatment programs that we operate have a, like a, a kiosk where a patient comes in, they put in their unique um, identifier, and, it, and the screen tells them what, what they need to do that day. Do they just go for dosing? Do they need to see the therapist? Do they need to see the, the doctor? You know, it, it's all configured so that the patient just goes in, they, they, they sign in, because in that modality, our goal is to get them in and out the door so they can go back to their lives as soon as possible. Um, we also um, spend a lot of time addressing any concerns the patients bring up. You know, um, if, a, if a patient, you know, calls in and says, you know, um, for the third day in a row, I've been late to work and I've, I'm in trouble and I might lose my job. Numerous um, individuals in the organization are aware of that information. So I, I'm aware of that information. The VP associated with that division is aware of that information. We have a lot of communication so we can figure out how to make sure that treatment is meeting the needs of the patients. So um, those those might be minor um strategies, but the goal is to make sure that when treatment is needed, that we have the right treatment for the right patient at the right place at the right time in the communities where the patients live. So I want to go kind of way back in the beginning when you talked about bringing on staff. Um, something I often bring up in this context is we mentioned the curriculum and trying to find that balance between the curriculum and what the um, clinicians are doing. You know, Sometimes you'll get this mindset that, well, I can't you know, I can't get the clinicians to do what I want, so I'm just gonna put a really hardcore curriculum in place and they have to follow it. But that's the wrong way to go because if there was such a thing as being able to create a curriculum that, you know, did what you wanted for patients, then I could just hire high schoolers. I wouldn't have to hire people with actual experience or knowledge, right? Like it doesn't work that way. Um, so when you're looking to hire people into your program related to that culture fit, related to this ability to build skill sets in the group setting, um, related to working their hardest to help patients, what are you looking for in the hiring process? That's a really good question. One aspect that I tend to, um, to spend a lot of time looking at is, is this someone who wants to work in addiction treatment as a a branch of healthcare treatment. You know, that, that, you know, as an organization, you know, we want to make sure we're providing healthcare treatment first and foremost, right? So addiction is a part of healthcare treatment. Um, so I look at the reasons that that person is seeking the type of, of, um, of work that they're applying for. Um, 
So, um, you know, we try to find the right fit, the right credentials, the right experience, the right personality, um, you know, basic um, information that can help us know that we have the right fit. And then providing a lot of training and support on the front end and also um, proper evaluation and monitoring early on so that we can address any issues that pop up. Um, I'm, I'm not opposed at all to bringing on someone who um, doesn't have a ton of experience as long as they're eager. Um, they can pick up easily and they're, they, they're passionate about the type of work we do. So I'll ask a lot of questions about you know, how one views addiction treatment, um, what are some of the expectations they have in, um, in, the, in the work that we, we provide. Um, as an organization, we, we do a fair amount of medication-assisted treatment. Um, the reason we do this is that it's, it's proven to be effective in um, helping patients improve their lives. Um, so there, there's a little controversy, you know, in some parts of the industry about whether medication-assisted treatment is good or bad or not. Um, our philosophy is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you, you have to treat patients while they're alive, <laughs> right? So, so we, we don't, we, we put, we try to put all the tools on the table and all the options available. And even if, even if deep down for that particular patient, we would be thinking, okay, if, if, if I were your loved one, I would pick this treatment. Um, that person's more likely to adhere to the treatment that they prefer. So, so we try to help, you know, guide them and make recommendations and give them, you know, possible um, implications of their choice. But then we also try to make sure they get the best treatment for them um, and that we're consistently providing education around what medication-assisted treatment can do and, um, and providing support for the patient and, and getting what they need. It's interesting. I had a fascinating conversation the other day with someone kind of related to that point is they were saying in their program that they'll sometimes give the patients less just because they see that that's what they can handle. So the example was they were coming in for <clears throat> just kind of um, MAT and some related counseling, and they had an IOP program available that they could go into, but they wouldn't default people into the IOP program because what they were seeing with some patients is that they would overload on it. They'd feel it was too much. It was too overwhelming, you know, in addition to them maybe having to leave a job or leave family or find childcare or whatever to do the more intensive treatment. So it's, they were saying that, you know, it's not that more treatment wouldn't be better potentially, but if you can't retain them in that treatment or if they feel so overwhelmed that they leave, then, then it's not successful. And so you have to work with the patient where they're at and then bring, it was, it was a really interesting discussion. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I think we've covered a lot of great topics here and it sounds like you're saying attitude is really kind of like one of the number one determinants of a good staff member from your end. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I've seen that in every single role I've been in and across industries and companies. So last question I have for you here is a little bit, um, doesn't quite fit into the rest of the conversation, but something that we've talked about and it's silence, silence in the group space. And this is something that really caught my attention when you were speaking. And I've seen this all the time is people are uncomfortable with silence in a group, but people need processing time, right? If they're thinking through a traumatic event, if you've taught them something really new and important, you can't just keep going. You have to give them a minute or two. So how do you know when silence is beneficial and how do you know when it's just dead air within the group space? 
That is a really good point. And, um, you know, how I would um, respond to that is, you know, if, if as a, as a, a treatment provider, if you are committing yourself to utilizing the skills that you're trying to teach, which I think is critical, you know, so, you know, when I'm talking about acceptance and commitment therapy or dialectical behavior therapy, these are skills I use, right? I use them. So it's easy to teach what you're using every day. Um, so um, I, I personally do a lot of mindfulness work for myself. I mean, I, I, you know, do meditation. I've done meditation retreats. You know, um, it's, it's a commitment that I make in my own life which, um, you know, from uh, the point of view of how do you know when to give space for a patient to respond or even, even just to let something that just happened sink in, the more mindful you are, the more you'll know when that is appropriate. And the more, and, and, and the, the patient is going to like um, tune into your energy as well. So if as a, as a treatment provider, you're confident, you're comfortable, they're used to you leaving space for them they're going to very quickly um, become at ease with that. If you're trying to force it, you know, like if you're trying to anticipate where the most appropriate time would be to provide space, it's probably not going to go well. It's more like a, like a song than it is a skill, if that makes sense. Um, So, so, you know, you're, you're kind of, um, if you're really mindful and in the moment and you're not rushing and you're not trying like, okay, hold still. I'm going to teach you some stuff. <laughs> like, like, just hold on. I'm going to like, uh, like, like load you up with, with skills. But if it's, if it's something that you're trying to share with someone that you possess, that you're already working on, and that you're, you're trying to share it almost as a gift that you're going to give to someone, um, then it's, it's going to go a lot more smoothly. Um, so, um, I, you know, I've done work as well with adolescents and they can be an interesting bunch, um, you know, a lot of similarities in, um, adolescent behavioral disorders as well as, um, in the, in, in treating addiction where, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable because the moment is just really intense. The person is struggling. They may be, um, um, frustrated. They may be angry at someone. They may be angry at you, Right. And um, that moment of silence, that moment, that space is one that doesn't feel good at all, right? But if, you, but if you're practicing that mindfulness and it's a consistent part of your own daily practice, then you know that it's okay, <laughs> that, that it's okay that it's not comfortable and that you're, you're, all, you're, you're experiencing that discomfort, they're experiencing that discomfort, and that if you wait long enough, and often it doesn't take more than like 30 seconds, you're going to get a response, and that you're going to be able to react to that response. If you're just teaching, you know, you're just kind of going through a curriculum, and you're going through step one, step two, step three, then you don't know what that person is, is gaining from that interaction. You just don't know. You know, where if you go at a pace that there's a lot of space, there's also a lot of information, then you're, you're going with the patient. You're not offloading onto the patient. Yeah, that's really good. More I, like a journey. I think you brought up two points, right? There's a teaching element of it. And, you know, oftentimes I feel you can sense that just by the look in people's eyes. They get that faraway look where they're processing something and you see 
most of the group doing that so you know it's a good time to just like kind of silence and then once they kind of process it their eyes will turn back to you right in the teaching center exactly but then you mentioned also just the emotional intensity space and that's one I, you know i haven't thought about in a while but you're right you know and something i think i've done just in leadership roles or in teaching settings and clinical settings is um letting people know that it's okay to take a minute you know or come back to something right and say hey look you know, I'm really upset right now. Uh, this conversation is not going to go well. Why don't we pause and, and do this again, you know, next group or after lunch or tomorrow, <laughs> because it's just not going to happen right now. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's important to know. And, and what, one other comment I think is important to know, and this gets back to um, building a team that you trust, is if the more a, a treatment provider is aware of their own vulnerabilities, the more they can shape relying on others you know like i've had situations with with patients over the years where you know deep down i've known that when an interaction is required that i'm probably not the best person to go into that interaction you know like i'm frustrated i'm tired i i've i've kind my patience has already been tried with that patient and i have enough ob- objectivity to 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 know what i want for that patient right now is the best we have to offer i'm not that today I, I, I'm usually that. I strive to be that. But in this moment, I'm probably not that. So then I, I bring another treatment provider in and I'll say, okay, this person has a really good relationship with you. I really want this person to have the best we have to offer. I can't do it today. Yeah, you know? that's great. And, and, to, and to have that awareness. At your, so you're not only shaping it as a leader, but you're, you're providing space for your staff to come and say, listen, I'm having a really, really hard day. And I'm not at my best. And I, and I need, you know, like, can I, can I like go and do some chart reviews or can I do something? Because right now I'm not bringing my best to the table. And you're making it uh, like a, a real human possibility that we may not be our best. Um, and then you're supporting each other as a team. Yeah, that's great. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah. And you're going back to that self-care component, you know, of just knowing that it's yeah. okay to say, hey, you know, I'm not at my best today. Can someone else come in and support, you know, and that, that gives you the space emotionally, you know, psychologically to um, kind of recenter. Exactly. For sure. So I uh, really appreciate all the information, Lori. It's super fantastic in terms of the conversation. If people want to get in touch with you or Pinnacle, what's the best way to do that? Sure. You know, they can go ahead and shoot me an email. Um, my email address is lori.ryland at pinnacletreatment.com. I'll spell it now. Um, L-O-R-I dot R-Y-L-A-N-D at pinnacletreatment, P-I-N-N-A-C-L-E-T-R-E-A-T-M-E-N-T.com. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. And as always, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. We appreciate you for joining us and see you next time. All right. Thanks, Nick. Okay. So as promised, I was going to do a little bit of a run through of what a process group might look like if we're doing it from a skills-based standpoint. So let's take the skill set of you know, being at a, in a holiday situation, right? Right now it's the holidays. we got Thanksgiving and Christmas here. And what do you do when you're in a family situation and people are offering you alcohol or they're offering you other substances and you no longer want to partake in that? How do you handle it? What do you do? And oftentimes what 
clinicians will do is they'll talk about what to do or what to say. We all know what we need to do and what to say, but there's a huge difference between knowing it and being able to do it. And part of this is because you need to build up unconscious automated behavioral processes in your head um, that your brain uses as your go-to track. So in the past, you went towards addiction. That was a neural pathway. That was a super highway in the brain that you've built. And that's going to be your default until you build up a new neural pathway. So a big part of the clinical process and skill set building is going to be repetition. So we enter into this clinical process group, and the first thing we're going to do is we're going to introduce a topic. And we want to do so in an engaging way so people are motivated, they're encouraged to be um, part of the discussion. And so we talk about, you know, have you ever been in a situation where people were offering you uh, substances and you didn't want to partake and how were you able to handle that? You're going to get a ton of stories, right? You're going to get a lot of engagement. So you handle that discussion for a little bit. And then what you say is to say, okay, well, I want you to talk to a partner and discuss how you handle that situation, right? So you initiated the, the group discussion, maybe spent five minutes on that to get people warmed up, to get people involved. But now you want them really engaging and having conversations with their partners and their friends because part of the other skills you're building are communication, connection to others, um, and all these other important aspects that need to be developed within treatment. So you have pair work discussions and you get feedback from those pair work discussions. So what happened in the pair work discussions? What topics came up? What were people talking about? What were the challenges people faced? What did they find worked for them in the past? Now what we want to do at this point, since we've introduced the topic, is we want to elicit from the participants, from the patients, strategies they've used and actually particular language they've used that has worked. So the clinician is going to take that feedback from the patients and put it on the board. The reasons for doing this is they are not just getting the patients to participate, so there's internal motivation here that's helping the patients be part of the process. It's also allowing you as a clinician to know what the patients know, and you're going to see gaps and you're going to see strengths, and that's going to help you define the rest of the group in terms of how much support you're giving or how much you need to cover before you go into certain activities. So once you have a bunch of situations boarded, you have a bunch of language boarded and how they can handle um, this particular context, now we're going to go back into our pair discussions. We're going to say, okay, one of you is going to be um, the person that's offering the other person to drink. Maybe they're being insistent. Maybe they're being pushy. Um, but you want to make sure that you're applying some pressure to get this person to drink or use substances. The other person is going to be the one saying no. So we have all this language on the board we can use and some of the strategies that we've talked about. Go. Now they go back and forth. They talk about this. The clinician's job at this point is to listen, observe, and evaluate. So they're popping from pair to pair and they're listening to see how those discussions are going. And you're going to hear problems. You're going to hear discussions that maybe didn't go in the best direction or language that was used that might not be um, achieving the outcome that you're looking for. And you're gonna eventually stop that pair discussion, bring the entire group back and then evaluate some of those things that you heard. You wanna evaluate both problems as well as strengths. Here's something really good that Sally said that I thought was effective in this situation. What do you guys think? Here's something else that I heard. I'm not gonna mention a name because it's a weakness, but here's something else that I heard that was not so good and might've actually led to escalation of a conflict. What do we think about that? What are some other things that we could have said instead? So you should be boarding more language at this point and getting more strategies on the board, getting more language on the board that's coming from the class that people are using. And then people should be incorporating what they're seeing on the board as additional strategies in their use. 
You go back to the pair work. This time you'll switch. You'll have people switch partners or maybe they'll just switch the pair, the person that's doing the pushing and the other one that's doing the answering. You can do as many rounds of that as you feel is going to be effective as long as the patients are engaged and as long as you're getting value out of the skill set building. So again, some people are going to say, well, you know, we're doing, we know how to do this. That's great. But the point is building up the unconscious process, right? I can, again, I can go, hey, you know what? I want you to do a backflip on that trampoline. So here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go on that trampoline, you're gonna jump really high, you're gonna tuck your body, you're gonna push your weight forward, but not too far forward because you wanna land on your feet, right? Talking you through that process is not going to help you actually do the backflip on the trampoline. You have to practice it. And so that's the exact same thing that you're doing here. You want as many repetitions as possible in an engaging context. So you're helping build those automated processes in the brain, as well as from a clinical standpoint, you're listening, you're observing, you're able to provide support and guidance, see where the gaps are. Once you've moved through the pair work phase, then what you can do is you can do a whole class engagement activity. So this is something where, again, we'd wanna make it fun, we'd wanna make it engaging. So we might have um, activity cards or role play cards and say, okay, you are the belligerent uncle or you are the friend that never gives up and you are the um, you know, father that is always negative towards their son or daughter, right? Um, and they're constantly making rude comments about them and saying that they're weak for not being able to handle their substance use, whatever it is. So you give these people these cards and that allows people to act in character, step outside themselves a little bit, but also kind of make it fun and challenging and not as personal still you're allowing them to practice. And so making this as real as possible, obviously I would recommend actually bringing in, for example, empty beer bottles and say, okay, the person that's pushing the alcohol on him is actually gonna push an empty beer bottle on them. You know, that's a choice as a clinician you can make. If you don't wanna do that, you can just use paper cards or soda bottles, what have you. Um, but I prefer to make it as real to the actual situation that they'll be in as possible. Uh, it just helps set the context and the patterns in the brain because context is super important for use. You know, that's, that's why, for example, you will do better on a test that you've studied for in the same exact room where you're taking the test. Your brain operates a lot around context. So what you're trying to do is to create the exact same context that they might experience outside. So you're gonna create a family style gathering, or maybe you wanna create a bar scene and get as close as possible to reality so that as they're practicing this back and forth again, they've done it in a real setting that their brain connects an unconscious process to a certain context. And again, they've also had, by the time you finish you know, a 45 minute period, they've practiced the situation, they've practiced this language, they've kind of built up those neural pathways and at least started a foundation, you know, 50, 60 times by the end of the activity. Compare that to a psychoeducational process or where the clinician's just asking people one-on-one -on -one and, you know, maybe they get six minutes of actual talk time in a 60 minute period, right? If you've got 10 people in that group. So you went from them talking for a whopping six minutes to them talking for a full 40 minutes, maybe out of the 45. That's super valuable. And that consistent practice is what's gonna build the automated process in the brain that they're gonna to need to be successful to navigate these situations outside. So I hope that was helpful. I hope that kind of provided a concrete example of what a skill-based activity would look like. And again, it's not super hard, right? It's pretty easy. You just think through the skill you need to build and you say, okay, well, how am I going to 
provide them learning affordances and learning opportunities to practice that skill again and again. How can I get it as close as possible to reality? And then how do, can I scaffold that activity appropriately? So I'm starting off with something very easy, something engaging. I build into it a little bit more. I provide a little bit more structure. And then by the final activity, there's no structure. And I'm asking them, well, there's not no structure, but I'm asking them to incorporate everything that we've talked about in a very loose structure as close to a real situation as possible. But they've actually kind of come every step along the way to be able to understand that step by step. And on top of that, you've been able to support them and see where the gaps are and see what the strengths are throughout that entire process and been able to actually tailor the activities and the support that you're providing in the group as a group moves along.